Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today, we're going to be talking about trauma-informed parenting, more specifically, practical applications of the trust-based relational intervention techniques, which is otherwise known as TBRI. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. Research has showed us that, on average, kids who have experienced um, some of those risk factors um, are half their chronological age developmentally. So that means when I'm, you know, working with, when I'm parenting a 12-year-old, he's probably more like five or six developmentally. And so what we know is that we have to meet them at their developmental stage before we can ever expect them to get to their chronological stage. This show is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Foster Care Education and Support Nonprofit. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am your host and the director of Creating a Family. And you can find us and all of our resources online at creatingafamily.org. This show is underwritten by Jockey Bing Family Foundation. They are looking for adoption agencies. Jockey Bing Family Foundation, I should say, is looking for adoption agencies who want to provide continual support to their families after adoption. They have a wonderful program. called They call it their backpack program for obvious reasons because it involves a backpack. It's a customized backpack with the initials of the child, and it's filled with helpful information as well as a for the parents as well as a adorable little bear and a blanket for the child. Let your agency know about this free resource. It's free. It's free for the agencies. Your agencies are the ones who have to apply. So let your agency know, and they can sign up at the jockeybeingfamily.com site. This show, as well as all the resources at Creating a Family, are possible through the generous support of organizations that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information to both pre- and post-adoptive families. One such wonderful organization is Children's House International. They are a nonprofit, Hague-accredited international adoption agency with programs in 13 countries. They provide full services, including home studies, in the states of Florida, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Texas, Utah, and Washington, Washington State, and they place children with any U.S.-approved family worldwide. Today, we're going to be talking about trauma-informed parenting, practical applications of trust-based relational intervention, otherwise known as TBRI. We're going to be talking with Amanda Purvis. She is a training specialist with the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development, and she has been with them, and I should point out that even though they share a last name, she is not related to the to the late, great Dr. Karen Purvis, who was a, a longtime friend of this show. She had been on the show. I don't know if you knew that, Amanda. She, uh, she, has, uh, she had, I don't mean show, she has done uh, courses for uh, and interviews with and courses for creating a family. Uh, so anyway, uh, we are so thankful that you are here today to talk to us about trust-based relational intervention. Um, let me start, Amanda, with talking about trauma. How does trauma impact children? And, and by trauma, let me say that this comes in the form of abuse and neglect as well as institutional care, which is something that many children who are adopted internationally experience. Uh, so let's talk some about how trauma impacts children. Yeah, thank you. It's an honor um, to be on today, so thank you for inviting me. Um, but, yeah, I could, I was already teasing Dawn that we could talk about her list of things for about six hours today. <laughs> um, and and just this idea hour. of trauma for probably five of those. So Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so true. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, but yeah, this this idea of trauma and how it uh, changes kids is huge. And the biggest things um, that we know through research um, is that those risk factors um, that, you know, we've kind of taken what's called the ACEs study um, or the Adverse yeah. Childhood Experience study. Um, and we've kind of combined um, those into what we have as seven different risk factors that in research we can see have they change the brain. Um, and the reason that that's so important for us um, as caregivers to understand is that when we understand that our kids have experienced those traumas, um, then we know that their brains are different. And as a result of that, um, we know that we have to approach them differently. So our toolbox, um, you know, we have to add more tools um, because some of the things that work 
um, with kids who have not experienced trauma, they will not work for our kids who have experienced trauma. Um, so some of those risk factors, you mentioned the big ones, abuse, neglect, trauma, system effects, um, but some other ones that we have that are important to understand are um, a difficult pregnancy, um, and really any child who is touched by adoption probably experienced a difficult pregnancy, because um, one of the biggest things that research has showed us is that stress during pregnancy changes the brain um, of the developing fetus. So that's big to understand that at birth, their brains already look different. Um, and then also a difficult birth and an early hospitalization. And early hospitalization is huge too because the same researcher who kind of studied um, how stress affects the brain in pregnancy um, and the developing brain of the fetus, um, she also discovered, um, and it's Tiffany Fields in her research, um, that those parents who did experience high levels of stress, um, that they were more likely to um, have preterm labor and therefore their kids were much more likely um, to end up in the NICU. Um, but what we mean by early hospitalization is really any repetitive um, medical trauma that occurs preverbally. And when we do fMRIs of the brains of kids who have experienced that, and then fMRIs of kids who have experienced physical abuse, their brains look the same. Um, and that's huge for us to understand um, because what's happening in that brain of the baby who pre-verbally, they don't understand, you know, we're doing this to save your life. We're doing this so that you can walk later on. We're doing this to help you breathe or, you know, whatever the intervention is um, that we need to do. Before they can understand that, all they know is this hurts. I'm crying for you to stop and you're not stopping it. Mm -hmm. And so that registers in their brain the same as physical abuse. Um, and so knowing that those brain changes occur are huge. Um, and then there's really two big brain changes that we see um, that happen from these risk factors. Um, the first is we can see a thickened corpus callosum, and that's the part of the brain that connects the left and right hemispheres. And that, um, what that means is it can slow down verbal processing time. Seem like a big deal unless you live with a kid who has thickened corpus callosum because what that looks like in our house is, you know, somebody's throwing the ball um, and there's a spot in our house that's in between the TV and the big window in our living room, right? And there's one spot, a blank wall. And so uh -huh. he's throwing the tennis ball right there, right? And so when I say, hey, bud, I need you to stop throwing the tennis ball, how many times do you think he throws that <laughs> tennis ball before he stops? Well, certainly more than one. It is. Yeah, it's too many if you're a parent, right? Like, we're all or going, if you're a window oh, right? that's going to get hit by that ball, yes. Or or a flat screen TV, right? Yeah, either one. Good point. So, yeah, point. it's like five or six. Yeah, five or six more times he's throwing that ball. And so by the time I get to him and I'm like, bud, I told you to stop throwing the ball, his response is always the same, and it's this. But, but I did. Because in his reality, the moment that he processed that I asked him to stop throwing the ball, he obeyed. But to mm -hmm. everyone else sitting in my living room watching that, he disobeyed five times. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we as parents find ourselves, you know, knocking heads with our kids and getting so frustrated if we don't understand that their, that their brains look different. And so we have to have different approaches um, than what would you know, work with another kid. Um, and that, that translates into school, that translates, you know, into so many ways um, and so many areas of their lives if we don't understand just that one simple brain change. So you said there were two. So one brain change affects their verbal processing time. Um, what is the other brain change? Yeah, the other one um, is when we do fMRIs, we can see that kids who have experienced these early traumas, um, that they're amygdalas can be up to two times larger. And Dan Siegel does a wonderful job. He has something called the hand model of the brain. Um, and it's a great, easy way to kind of explain the brain to anybody, but even kids. Um, but the big thing that happens with our amygdalas, our amygdalas are the watchdog of the brain. They're the part of the brain that's always scanning the environment to make sure, are we safe? Is it safe here? Can I sit in this spot? Can I see people who enter and exit to, you know, is, that teacher's voice safe, is the person next to me, all those things. So it's responsible for what we all know as our fight, flight, and freeze responses. Um, and so when the amygdalas 
are larger, what that means is we see that as hypervigilance, right? We see kids who are always checking out and making sure, am I safe? But oftentimes it doesn't look like that. Um, what it looks like is kids who are having these huge behaviors, right? All the kids are walking um, to lunch in school and, you know, the kid behind our kid bumps into him by accident. And his amygdala, because it's larger, goes into fight, flight, or freeze like that. It goes so quickly um, that our kid turns around and fight, right, socks the kid in the face. Um, and what then our kid is an aggressive kid, a bully, a violent kid, right, all those things. But in reality, our kid is a kid whose brain looks different than the kid behind him, and therefore he has different responses. Um, and so understanding that that fight, flight, or freeze response is going to be much more accelerated and much larger in our kids. And they have absolutely zero responsibility for that reaction. And so what we're going to be spending the rest of our time talking about is how we parent children who have these brain changes caused through no fault of their own. Um, through exposures, through whether we call them adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, or whether we call them risk factors, or or whether we call it abuse, neglect, or or the specific things, medical interventions, or premature birth, or institutionalization, or uh, any of those things. Um, We have kids who, who behave differently and who we have to then have, their brains are different, and so as a result, we have to parent differently. But we also have to be able to have children. That one of our jobs as parents is to raise children who can function in the world, and uh, and also function within in our family and 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 and, and contribute to a a healthy family life. So we uh, talked with parents and said, okay, what are your most challenging issues in parenting these children who have experienced trauma? Um, one of the first ones that came up was tantrums. Um, you know, full either full fledged uh, laying down on the ground screaming or whatever, or um, angry angry outbursts, uh, which would also fall into the category of tantrums. So, uh, Amanda, <laughs> what do we do with <laughs> fix children? It. So, yeah, fix it, Amanda. Please go, tell us how to fix this. Okay. Um, Well, with TBRI, we kind of have three main principles that we rely on, um, and those principles are based on the research of how do we help to change the brain? How do we bring healing based on those traumas? Um, And so I'm going to kind of be referring to those three principles as we go through some of these um, problematic behaviors. Um, but the the main, the foundation of TBRI is our connecting principles, and that has everything to do with attachment and giving voice to kids. Um, so the big thing about tantrums, and I would just like to add, first of all, from a child development perspective, based on the age, right, these are totally normal, and they have nothing to do with trauma, right? Um, we all know that as kids develop, um, you know, they're supposed to tantrum, um, and then we're supposed to teach them how to do it right next time. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes. but with that being said, um, we know that we have big kids sometimes who are tantruping like little, and part of that is because um, we know research has showed us that on average, kids who have experienced um, some of those risk factors um, are half their chronological age developmentally. So that means when I'm, you know, working with, when I'm parenting a 12-year-old, he's probably more like five or six developmentally. And so what we know is that we have to meet them at their developmental stage before we can ever expect them to get to their chronological stage. So if I have a 12-year-old who's acting like a six-year-old, I need to treat him like a six-year-old in that moment and give him what a six-year-old needs, and then and only then after I meet the need can I teach him how to do it better next time. So the Mm -hmm. big thing that we say in TBRI, and this specifically um, works for tantrums, is that behavior is the language of unmet need. And so what we need to ask ourselves as caregivers when we have a big behavior, including, right, a tantrum, is what is the need behind this behavior? What does my kid need? What are they trying to get met in this moment? Um, And we have to meet that need when we understand their brain. 
we have to meet that need before they can ever calm down and engage their brain in this place where then they can learn and be taught how to do it better next time. So if I have a 12-year-old on the floor of Walmart, right, who's throwing a tantrum because I said no to the talkies, right, um, then what I know is in that moment, what does he need, right? Does he need trust? Does he need a voice? Does he need me to hear him and to say, oh, that is obviously important to you? Or is he starving? Is he tired, right? As parents, oftentimes if we're attuned with our kids, we know what the need is, right? Is the need that he's exhausted, because if that's the case, then I'm going to help meet that need, right, before I then teach him about not throwing a tantrum in Walmart next time. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Um, and and, and the, he's not throwing a tantrum over the snack. Well, he is throwing a tantrum over the snack he's not getting. But you're saying look beyond and what's the, what's the underlying need that he wants. He wants you to know that he's angry. He wants you to – he's – He's overtired or, or overstimulated or, or whatever. Yeah. Okay. And so how yeah, what's in that need and meet the need. Okay, so in that moment you have a child who is tantruming and in, in this case you the example you gave the child was in public. What what does that actually look like? Uh does it mean leaving the store with the child? Does it mean getting on the floor with the child, trying to meet the child's needs there? What does that look like? Yeah, I think one of the hardest things for us um, as caregivers to kids who have experienced trauma is letting go of the what people think part, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> or And even bigger and even a, a massive journey for each of us that we're required to take in this is getting rid of how we were raised. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes that's what holds us back in those exact moments from meeting the need. Um, so what we know about the brain is that when it's emotional, right, when we have a kid who's tantruming, they're in the right side of their brain. And we can absolutely not logic someone out of the right side of their brain. So when you try to meet emotion with logic, an example might be if your partner or significant other, last time they told you, whoa, calm down, were you like, oh, yeah, you're right, I should calm down right now. Thank you for that tip. And then did you just calm right down? Usually not, right? Usually when someone meets our emotion with logic, um, it just, we don't even process it, right? Or it upsets us even more. So understanding yeah, we feel that unheard. when we have a kid, exactly, yep. And yeah. just so we all are reminded, our kids are just like us, okay? <laughs> so if, yeah. if your partner or significant other telling you to just chill out, calm down, if that doesn't work for you, it's definitely not going to work for your 12-year-old on the floor in Walmart, So we have to meet that right brain with our right brain. Um, And what we know about brain development is that's called co-regulation. And they need our brains and bodies to co-regulate until the age of really 30 for men and about 26 for women. (laughs) So this idea of you're too big to do that or you're too old to do that, um, it doesn't apply. Um, So what we know is we have to meet that emotion with our emotion. And so oftentimes what I would say – and not knowing the need behind the behavior, would be sit next to that kid, remain calm, and say, what do you need? Or how can I help? Very simple. We're not going to talk at them. We're not going to try to solve the problem for them. We're not going to keep talking about the talkies. But we're going to say, what do you need? How can I help? Right? Um, And we're going to meet that emotion with our emotional openness and willingness. Then and only then can we help calm the right side of the brain and bring in the left for full integration, which is the definition of mental health. All right. You had said that there were three main principles um, under uh, uh, TBRI, uh, Trust-Based Relational Intervention. One is the first and kind of the underlying one for everything is connecting, uh, attaching, giving voice to a child. What is the second main principle? So after um, connection, we can build on that secure attachment through empowering. And those are these ideas of empowering their brains and bodies to succeed and also providing environments where they can succeed. 
So a lot of that has to do with what does their brain and body need in this moment? So if we have a kid who's in their downstairs brain, right, on the floor at Walmart, I need to connect with them. I need to sit next to them and offer my emotional openness and my calm mind and body. But then to empower them, I need to say, what does your body need, right? Like eat this cliff bar, right, while we're on the floor of Walmart and I've got my arm around you because I know that that's going to help bring some um, calmness to your neurotransmitters or, hey, I know that the lights in here are driving you crazy, so why don't you borrow my sunglasses? So this is where a lot of that sensory processing stuff comes into play as well as um, providing structure to an environment um, and those sorts of things. Okay, so our second main principle, and you just, thank you, you just applied it to our tantruming situation, uh, is to empower the child. And the what is the third of the main principles under TBRI? Yeah, so the last thing, if you kind of think of them as a pyramid, you know, connecting is the base, the widest part. That's where we want to spend the most amount of our time and effort and energy. Then, you know, you build on top of that base into that um, empowering piece. And then the last thing, the part that we want to spend the least amount of time on, but that is very important, is this correction um, or how do we correct behaviors. And part of that is being proactive and how do we set them up and teach them the life skills that they need. And then lastly, when the wheels do fall off and we are on the floor of Walmart, here's what we do about it. Yeah. And so, and, uh, so all right, you've sat on the floor with the child. You've put your arm around mm-hmm. them. You have given them a cliff bar and or given them your sunglasses, given them voice to explain what their needs are. So how would you do the correction or would you do the correction? So once they've calmed down, right, because remembering that their brains can't hear what I have to say until they've gotten their need met. So once I've met the need, then hopefully, right, we're walking down the next aisle at Walmart, and I say, bud, hey, I know that you, you know, were upset about the talkies, right? When I know his brain is calm and we are back in connection with each other, and only then do I do the correction. And then I walk them through it, right? hey, I know you were upset about the talkies. I think it's most likely because you're hungry and tired because you had practice this morning. Um, So I want to get home quickly so that you can get to bed on time tonight. And when we get in the car, I have another bar or I have some water if you need it. Um, Next time I say no to talkies, if those are really important to you, I want you to try calmly asking me. So, hey, right, right now let's practice. I'm gonna, you're going to say, can I have these? I'm going to say no. And then I want you to calmly ask politely again and maybe tell me why, right? And then I'm literally going to practice it with him, right? We mm-hmm. call that the redo. Because what we're doing there is we're making new neural connections in their brain so that they have that wired into their brain so that next time they know what to do and they have that connection. And then after he does that, I'm going to give him a high five, right? And say, great job, buddy. Right, because then that goes over that new neural connection again. And every time we go over that neural connection, it becomes faster and faster. Um, and then if you really want to be TBRI, you're going to walk back down that aisle and go get them the talkies, right? And you're going to say, since you asked with respect and good words and good eyes, I'm going to get those for you. And now I understand it's important for you because it feels like everybody else at school has them and you're trying to fit in at this new school. So let's go get So let's go get So you would actually go in at that point get them and if if it, if that is practical and and something that you could do right yeah okay right. And that if it's a always... $300 bike right yeah. right and if that's not in the budget it's hey great job telling me why you want that bike thank you for expressing your need to me i'm going to talk to papa and we're going to talk about our budget and let's see in the next few months if there's some things you can do around the house to earn some money and right and, but the point is we want to make sure that they know that words will work Anytime you give me words, I can move mountains to help you meet your need. When you give me a behavior, I don't know what to do with that. I need, and so we want to really, really encourage them to give us words. Yeah, that's and that's, and that's where that idea of voice comes in. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. All right. Let's use another example. Another. Um, um, fingers on the cha- fingernails on the chalkboard moment for many parents whining. Um, the mm-hmm. the child is whining to get their way. They're whining about 
being told no. They're whining uh, through dinner. Uh, they're moaning and groaning and, and whining. And, and we're not talking a tantrum. We're talking uh, more low-grade, uh, but quite frankly, yeah. equally annoying uh, uh, yeah. behavior. So um, pick whatever age you, you want to, to talk about, and, and let's apply the TBR, TBRI techniques are the main principles uh, to the, that uh, that uh, charming behavior called whining. Yeah. So there's a couple of things, and when we understand attachment and stuff, um, and we are, as adults, are doing our own work, um, that whining can really trigger for us. Um, because the thing about whining is most often a kid is expressing a negative emotion. Um, and what we want to make sure is okay in our homes to create secure attachment is that, all emotions are acceptable, right? You're allowed to have negative emotions just like you're allowed to have positive emotions. And a lot of us growing up, we're not allowed to express our negative emotions. Um, and that's why it feels so awful to us when our kids are doing that because we were never allowed to do that. And so we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with the fact that you're upset with your friend at school because she rolled her eyes at you. And like, I don't like, okay, I heard you. I got the story. Let's move on. Right. And so the constant whining about it is grating on us because we don't know ourselves how to deal with some of that negativity. Um, And so the first thing about whining is we want to make sure that we create space in our homes for all emotions to be acceptable. Because what we do know is that when we, what we teach our kids when they're little, they do when they're big. And so if we are saying to our three-year-olds and our four-year-olds, stop whining, and what we really mean is that tone of voice is bothering me, that's very different than stop complaining or stop whining. Um, and so we want to make sure that we make it very clear um, that you being upset about taking the trash out is okay. You know what? I don't like taking the trash out either. That's why I asked you to do it, right? <laughs> like, uh, if we're being honest with ourselves as parents, yeah. right? Um, well, that's I, one that's well, I want to thing. share the pain here, right? <laughs> right. Like so. Um, so this idea of like it's okay to share negative emotions, but then with TBRI, the the tone of voice that we're speaking to, what we say to that is, we need real girl or real boy voice. Um, because sometimes if we have kids who are whining a lot, that can be um, a, a trauma response um, to feeling afraid. And so we kind of have to decipher those. Um, but what will do that for us is real girl or real boy. Um, because when whining, when we use that baby voice, that says to the primitive brain, I'm, I'm a child, don't hurt me, right? Or I'm a little kid, I'm a little baby, please don't hurt me. Um, and so sometimes that can be a trauma response, but whether it's that or they're just whining, either way, if we say, hey, I need real girl or real boy, that communicates to them. That tone of voice won't work, but I do want to hear from what's, about what's really going on. I do want to hear from you and, your, and the real boy or the real girl, right? So is it that you don't like taking out the trash because the garage is dark and it scares you? Is it that you just don't like taking out the trash? That's fine. And you're allowed to say, Mom, I hate taking out. I don't like this chore. But if you say, Mom, I hate the trash. I don't want to do it. Right? And you're whining, that tone of voice drives me crazy. Right? But I do want to hear what you're feeling. And so just kind of making sure that the way that we communicate about whining is, I want to hear what you're feeling, but I want you to do it from the real girl or the real boy. Um, because that is who I can connect with and help. If this chore is awful to you, let's see next week, let's switch it up. So that next week, you're doing the litter box and feeding the cats. And then the next week, you'll have to switch back to trash. But that way, you'll get a week off here and there. Deal? Right? And what that communicates to a child is whining won't work, but sharing my feelings will. And also, I have a voice and I matter. And we want that to be the foundation for a safe relationship. Because if they learn that in their relationship with us, that translates into every relationship in their future. What about some uh, really uh, um, not just annoying but, uh, but potentially dangerous behaviors 
lying and stealing. Maybe we should separate those because I think they probably uh, can be different. Um, children, and, and, and let us also start by saying that lying and stealing both, uh, there are times in a child's development when it is not unusual, and this is not necessarily trauma-based. But right. uh, you're parenting a child that has experienced trauma, and they are not, and, and they're lying. And, and oftentimes, in my experience, it's it's lying over inconsequential things as well as big things. I mean, big things as well as things that just simply aren't. Um, and right. um, and it's the natural consequences are so hard to find with lying because oftentimes they're so far removed and or they're subtle, which is a lack of you know people no longer trust you. So uh, how would we apply TBRI to a child who's experienced trauma who is let's start with lying and again give us some uh, over a connect timing uh, age I mean I'm sorry timing age uh, let's do a couple of different ages. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I agree with you in the sense that lying and stealing often come together, but yes, they're mm-hmm. different, but usually if we have a kid who's lying, they're stealing. And if they're stealing, they're lying and vice versa, because yeah. they do kind of come as a package deal. Um, but the big thing, um, going back to kind of what we talked about earlier, um, is that what is the need behind the behavior? Oftentimes when we see lying and stealing or what I even start out talking to my kids about even younger is sneaking, right? Sneaking is like the beginning of lying, right? Um, But when we have any of those behaviors, what that should indicate to us as caregivers is oftentimes we have a kid who feels like they don't have a voice. They don't matter. Um, And that could or could not be a result of what's happened in our home, right? Most likely it's a result of what happened um, based on where they came from. Um, And so some of the very clear boundaries that we have for kids who haven't experienced trauma might be really stifling for kids who have, um, because what happens when we experience um, trauma is it changes our belief system. That's one of the things that it changes. Um, And so that can really change how boundaries feel to kids. Um, And so, for instance, um, let's take it with food, because that seems to be a common problem that we have with our kids is stealing or sneaking food or hoarding food or um, lots of food problems. Um, But when we take this back to the need behind the behavior, there's a couple things for us to understand. The first is hunger or satiation that is set in the brain in utero. So if you experience um, hunger in utero, um, then that part of your brain is off. Um, And so there's ways that we can teach somatically how to feel hungry, but their brain will never register to them. You are full, you are hungry, that part is off. And so um, they are sneaking food or stealing food or hoarding food um, most often because they're afraid that if, if I need to eat and I always have to find you or you're often saying no when I want a snack, um, then that's that's the need behind the behavior is to feel safe. I need access to food. That's very very common for our kids is that they need access to food at all times. Um, so one of the things that we would do about lying and stealing in terms of food is um, with TBRI we say that there are foods that are always a yes. Um, so we, I have a yes basket on my counter and a yes basket in the fridge that any time you ask with good words and good eyes. Because, again, we're teaching them, if you use your words, you will go very far in life. You will go very far in your relationship with me. If you're lying, if you're sneaking, if you're using behaviors, then I can't help you, right? So anytime you ask me, I'm going to say yes to these foods. Now, they are not all the food in the pantry, right? It's not the Cheetos or the Moon Pies, right? But it's string cheese, and right? It's usually high-protein foods. It's fruits on the counter. It's um, maybe, you know, protein bars or things like that. Um, that no matter when you ask, that is going to be a yes. And then you let them practice it. And I guarantee that the first time they ask for, at least this happens in our home, the first time that they ask for a snack, it's not close to dinner time. It's literally while I'm carrying dinner from the kitchen to the table, right? And they're like, I'm starving. Can I have a snack? So then as a caregiver, I can, you know, choose two different paths there. But if I have a kid who I know has stolen food, who's snuck food, who's lied about food in the past, 
What I want to recognize in that moment is they just used their words to get a need met, and so I want to reward that. And so the way I would respond to that is, absolutely, buddy. Thank you for asking. Grab a bar out of the basket and set it by your plate. And when we're done with dinner, it's all yours. Or why don't you stick that clementine in your pocket, and after dinner, it's all yours. Um, And so I sort of said no, but they don't know right? I I packaged it in this yes deal because I'm, I want to um, reward their brains and their bodies for asking and not stealing or sneaking. So that's the first thing um, is that we have to give voice to that and reward that much like we do with little babies, right? When they're 18 months old and they come up to us and they go, uh, uh, and you know, they're raising their arms up in the air and we say, say up, up, right? And then we pick them up and they're like, oh, that worked. Right, And that's how we teach them to have language. It's the same no matter how big our kids are. We have to make sure it works when they try it. So if they're trying a good behavior, we have to make sure it works for them. Otherwise, they'll go back to lying, stealing, sneaking, um, because that's worked for them in the past. Um, So the first thing is make sure you're giving voice, um, whether it has to do with food or not. Um, make sure that you're giving voice. Um, and then secondly, reward it when they use their words um, to get that met because that's huge for them. What about uh, taking the lying or stealing example, shoplifting? Um, you've okay. got your 10-year-old. Uh, let's take it out of the food and, and a child who is uh, are, are, are stealing it, uh, stealing a you know, a fancy pin from their friend at school or yeah. shoplifting uh, when we take them to uh, the store. Yep. Um, so that most often has to do with impulse control. And like you talked about, that can be based on their developmental age. But, again, remembering that for our kids, oftentimes they're half their chronological age. And so developmentally, and this is why we have – such hard issues when it comes to this stuff with our kids because they're 14 um, and a 14 year old stealing, you know, um, something from the store is a big deal to that store owner, a seven year old, Mm -hmm. right? The store owner, when you march that seven year old back in and say, we have something to return that we took without buying, right? That store owner looks that kid in the eye, right? That seven year old and says, Oh buddy, next time you put it in the cart and you make sure you have permission from your mom. Right. And they, they may, they might teach them something, but they're not going to press charges, right? right. Uh, but a lot of us have 14-year-old and 15-year-old and 18-year-olds who are 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 developmentally, mm-hmm. um, but people in the world don't look at them like that, right? right. Um, and so this impulse control thing is huge for our kids. Um, mm-hmm. So helping them um, to understand that um, and to understand and giving them tools um, to help with impulse control. Um, and knowing that impulse control and trauma, they are directly related in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how can we give them tools? So if we have a kid who we know has struggled with that, guess what? They know too, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, we're going to give them tools. Okay, we're going into the store. I know that you're a good kid, right? We're going to speak to who they are. I know you're a good kid. I know you don't want to make a bad choice. But I know that when you see gel pins, it's almost impossible for you to not want them, right? So what is our plan going into the store? And depending how old the kid is, right, we're going to let them have a voice about what the plan is, right? I'm going to keep my hands in my pockets or I, I brought $5, so can I buy $5 worth of gel pins or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to help them make a plan. We're going to maybe give them a fidget, right? We're going to put this squish ball in your pocket. Um, so that when we're in the store and you see something that you just cannot help but touch and accidentally put in your pocket, instead of touching it, you're going to use the squish ball. Or you're gonna, we're going to get you a milkshake on the way in so that you can just be focused on your milkshake, right, and focusing on that when we walk through the pen section. And I'll help you. And if you need help, you ask for help. And you say, Mom, I just saw that glitter one, and I'm dying to have it. I'll say, good job using your words. Great job not touching it. Maybe tonight when we get home, you could do the floorboards in the living room, and then tomorrow when I come to the grocery store, you'd have the money to get that, right? But we want to mm-hmm. reward the behavior, and we want to keep the lines of communication open, and then we want to make sure that we're giving them other things to do because oftentimes it's a sensory thing, and it's what can I do with my body in this moment where I'm having to control it. I don't, 
I literally don't know what to do with my hands when I can't grab things in the aisle. So I have this squish ball. I have this fidget cube. I have, I'm going to push the cart for my mom. I'm going to, right, um, what can I do with my body to control it? And so giving them options for that. And, and then tying in um, uh, lying, uh, a child who uh, the school calls and says, um, we believe that your son or daughter has uh, stolen a gel pen from uh, their, their kid who sits next to them. And you have reason to believe your child probably did, and your child is lying about it. So at that point, let's put uh, a TBRI into effect. Yeah. So with TBRI, the first thing we would do is if you know the answer to a question, don't ask it as a question, right? Mm-hmm. right. <laughs> then it gives the opportunity, right? So if, if you know that they stole the gel pen, even if you're like 85% sure, don't say, did you steal the gel pen, right? Because yeah. for mm-hmm. all of us, all of us don't want to get in trouble. Don't add in mm-hmm. trauma. Don't add in a shame core. Don't add in the different belief systems. Just in general, none of us want to get in trouble. So our immediate reaction is going to be no, right? Um, mm-hmm. So if you know they did, don't ask, did you? Um, say, buddy, I know that you have, you know, your desk mate's gel pen. Um, and then give them choices about how they're going to make it right. So would you like to give it to me and I can give it to the teacher when we get there, along with an apology note? Or would you like to give it to the teacher when you get to school tomorrow? And I'll be there and then you can tell her that you're sorry. Which, how would you like to clean up this mess? Right? And we're going to give them a voice and a choice. We hear you. You're important. You matter. Um, I already know that we've made this mistake. So how are we going to clean that up? How are we going to clean up the mess we made? Um, and leave it with that. And then if they continue to, no, I didn't, no, I didn't, you have to wait. You can't force someone to fix it, right? That's their control. And so oftentimes that can get into those power and control battles between parents and kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we say about kids from trauma is um, if you choose to have a power and control battle with them, they will win. <laughs> because they have had a lack of control in so many areas of their life that people should have control over, um, that this is life or death to them, and it's not to you. The gel pen is not life or death to you, but when you get in that power and control battle with the kid, it becomes life or death. That's how they made it to your house, safe and alive, um, was that they created these systems to keep themselves alive and to make it through the things that they've experienced and so we say don't ever choose power and control battles with our kids. Um, just say to them, like the simple thing at that point, which I say simple meaning it's a simple thing to do. It's not a simple thing to actually do. <laughs> but the simple thing in that moment would be when you're ready to clean up your mess, I want to help you. And leave it at that. Um, but because what happens, and, you know, even in our house we talk about when you feel yucky inside, um, you know, so – I know that you feel yucky inside and I know that you'll feel better when you clean up your mess and your relationship with your desk mate will continue and it will be just fine. But until we do that, you're probably going to feel yucky inside. And that person, that natural consequence, right, is they're going to be upset with you. Um, But I can't force them to do that. And if I try to make them do those things, all I do is push distance in between my relationship with them. And ultimately what we need the message to be with TBRI is no matter what, I got you. It's you and me against your history, not me against you. Mm-hmm. And so we have to always communicate that team um, kind of message to our kids because that's where that huge hurt is for them. Does it help to take the long view in, in this situation, which is to say, this gel pen may not, ultimately this gel pen will not be returned, potentially won't get returned. But in the long view, I have, I've sent the message that I am here for you, I've got your back, uh, even if the gel pen doesn't get returned. Exactly. Is that the point? Yeah, and that's a great okay. way of putting it. Yep, that's a great way of putting it. Because, again, remember, when our kids are little, we teach them things and then they do them when they're older. So if our message when, when they're little is when you mess up, your relationship with me is now 
no longer strong, right? Or when you have a problem, go to your room or go to timeout. Or when you lie, I don't speak to you until you fix it, or right? Any of those kind of messages that we lay out when they're younger, they do those things when they're big, right? So then we have teenagers who have a problem, who make a mistake, who lie to a friend, and when they get home from school, what do they do? They go Not to their so room, long. just like yeah, they taught yeah. them when they were little, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah. if we want teenagers who, when they struggle, who, when they deal with big problems, come to us, we have to make sure that we become available for little problems and little things when our kids are little. Because um, that's where we are literally making patterns in their brain for those behaviors. When I mess up, when my kid messes up, I want their brain to tell them, go to mom, she can help go to dad, he'll help you fix this. Not go to your room and isolate. Go to your room and try to figure this out on your own. Go to your friends and ask them for help. I want the message to be, no matter what, my mom and dad will help me. Because that's how I can continue to um, mentor their brains and bodies to make good decisions as they continue to develop. All right, let's talk a little about homework issues and homework struggles. This is a problem that particularly when we have, uh, well, regardless, children who have had the brain damage of of trauma and neglect or prenatal exposure or any of the other things that that cause learning, these all these things can damage the brain and all these things can affect learning. And we also have kids who have uh, potentially low attention spans, which also impacts learning, as well as children who come from a background where school was not uh, stressed. So all of these things can combine to make school and 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 uh, difficult. And in, from a parent standpoint, a lot of this difficulty is funneled into the dreaded word of homework. So let's take a practical approach to TBRI, and and how would we approach children who are struggling with homework, refusing to do it, lying about having done it, losing homework, um, what are some of the other things, uh, uh, hurrying through homework so they're not doing a good job, or uh, or dwaddling as though it's taking the entire evening. There's probably some other things I've left out about homework. Yeah, Yeah, homework is a big one, Um, so much so that for us personally, um, we have five kids, um, four of whom have experienced trauma, Um, so much so that they are now in a school that doesn't have homework, um, and research shows that homework doesn't improve test scores or any of those things. So this is a big one for me personally, but I also know that that's a new thing for our family, and until this year, they all had homework. So I I know this on a personal level. Um, And the first thing I would say is our parents advocating for what their kids' brains and bodies need Um, because what we know is that when a kid feels safe and connected or fully attached, then we have a kid whose brain can grow. But until that can happen, we have a kid who cannot grow developmentally. So any of that part that has to do with school is in kind of that top or that cortex, that prefrontal cortex part of the brain. And until we have a secure attachment, we don't have access to that. So here's an example. When we did foster care, um, we had a 13-year-old come into our home, and it was very clear that he needed an IEP. So they tested him, um, but it takes about 90 days from the time the test happens to when everything gets kind of put in place. And so when they tested him, he tested at a second and third grade reading level, um, and he was in seventh grade. And then by the time we went to the meeting 90 days later and they were beginning to um, kind of put in place all the services that he would need, they said, you know, here's what his results were um, for reading, but we saw such a huge change recently that we – retested him and now he's testing in between a sixth and seventh grade reading level but at school we've done nothing and so they said can you please tell us what you guys have done to support his reading because this growth in such a short amount of time is unbelievable to us Um, and I laughed and I said well what we do is we don't do homework and they kind of like nervously laughed and I said no really we in our home we have to make sure that attachment, especially this is a new kid in our home, right? So I have to make sure that that is my number one priority because until he feels safe, until he feels like the message is I got you, 
he doesn't even have access to the part of his brain that's in charge of learning how to read. So um, I had to make sure he felt safe. And so we had fun together. We did fun things. Part of that was I paid him to read a book um, that I wanted him to read. It had nothing to do with school, um, right? And he was struggling with it. So we would read together and laugh about it and Right, but I, we had fun together. We connected. And in that 90 days, he maybe for the first time in his 13 years felt safe. And so then he had access to the parts of his brains that, that he could catch up in reading. He could, all the part was there, right? So the first thing I would say is make sure that in your home, if homework has become a point of contention, stop. Maybe you can't stop homework, but stop making it a point of contention. Maybe you write a note to the teacher and you say, I am going to do my best to support at-home learning, and I will ask about homework. I will make sure um, that I know um, what they have or haven't done each night. But I, so I have a kid who, if I were to sit with him and say, I'm sorry, buddy, but you did this math problem wrong, the message he receives because of his trauma and his loss is, I'm bad. I'm a bad kid. And I... And I, as a parent, I, as the mom, especially because of the wounding he has from his history, I can't teach him math. I am not the person to teach him math. And so for me to sit down and tell him that he did a multiplication problem wrong is to him the same as me saying, you are bad, I don't want you. And there's nothing I can do in that interaction to change that belief system in him. And so his big behaviors that come out or his not wanting to do math or not has everything to do with his behavior. It has everything to do with his belief system and his biology around how that was changed with trauma. And so I need to say as a parent, I'm going to support him to feel safe at home. And at school, you're going to teach him how to do math. I can't teach him here. I have, he goes to a tutor three days a week who he loves and he does math with her, but I cannot do multiplication with him because he can't hear me teach him multiplication because his relationship with his biological mom was so fragile and had everything to do with are you doing the right thing or not. So I have to know that limitation in our relationship and give him what he needs, right? The need behind that behavior is I need to feel safe and connected with you. And so that won't help him feel safe and connected. So the first thing is, which schools don't like for me to say, but is if you can't do it at home, don't do it at home. Um, I have a couple kids with 504s and it's, we don't do homework or we do homework based on. And as they grow and develop, like I now have an eighth grader who he does his homework without ever being asked. And it says in his 504 he doesn't do homework, right? But he does it every day um, and he loves doing it. But there were years there where my message to him was, at home, at home, you're, it's fun, you can relax. Because we have kids who are living in that fight, flight, or freeze part of their brains, especially at school, all day long. And when they come home, they just need to breathe. So one thing to, I hear you say is most of uh, children who have experienced abuse and neglect or trauma of any form um, explore the idea of at least a 504 there this show this this course is not directly connected to just the right. uh, you know the explanation of the differences and quite frankly it probably changes by school districts but there uh, there are things that the school can do and often quite quite frankly they're reticent to do it because they don't want to make exceptions so one thing i'm hearing you say is it is up to us to advocate for our children's fundamental needs and their fundamental needs should take precedent over their academic needs. And they're not often, sometimes they're not in conflict, but quite often they are, particularly when children are relatively new into our homes. Yeah, exactly. And then ultimately you find what works, um, maybe because of our own history and how we were raised. For us to sit and do homework with our kid is not a healthy thing. And so what will work? Is it that when dad gets home, you do homework? Is it that um, we pay a 12-year-old neighbor to come over and help with homework for one hour every day? And they are, you know, and we're there to help with behavior and snacks and all those things, but she's the one actually doing the homework and it's $7 an hour, you know? Like, like is there, yeah. what else can I do so that my job as the primary caregiver is to give care, 
mm-hmm. um, not teach math or not teach punctuation um, and come up with an alternative plan because it will help everyone to feel more safe and connected. And then and only then will your kids have access to that part of their brains where they can grow and learn in school in a much easier way. You know, I think that one of the things that trips us up as parents is the feeling of, oh, my God, they're so far behind. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? They're never going to be able to – they're never going to get into college. They're never going to graduate high school. They're never going to, you know, not live in my basement. They're never – you know, it's the what ifs. The story in our head. Yeah. The story in our head, (laughs) the spinning. And and, and homework – is the is the concrete representation of that because it it drives home to us that our children really are awfully behind and and so I think that I think that interferes sometimes. Do you see that as well? Absolutely, and that's why I'm saying it can often be an unhealthy dynamic between a kid from trauma and their caregiver because of that triggering for us as the caregiver um, and what it does for us. And that's why sometimes the answer is for us to not um, be as involved as we need to be. And I think that can be a little bit controversial, but I think for a lot of people that's so freeing to know, oh, I don't also have to teach this kid math, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I don't also have to teach them. Because you know what? They might not go to college, but they might be the most fantastic football coach or they might be the most fantastic right like we don't have to figure out the future what but what we do have to figure out is their relationship with us because from Mm -hmm. a safe relationship they can launch to be their best selves Um, Mm -hmm. but without that it's just going to trigger all that trauma stuff for them so it's that's so important for us to remember and we can't tackle it all the one thing we have control over is relationship attachment connection and if homework is interfering with that, then homework takes a second seat or a back seat, I guess, is is the term. All right. Another issue we hear frequently about are sleep issues. Um, And this can, we we certainly hear about it more with children under the age of six, but it can continue. Um, And and it's it's the exhaustion that parents feel um, on how to deal with this uh, really influences their ability to function as well. So it's a big issue. So let's talk about sleep issues and let's break it down to uh, different ages because I think that how we approach it might be different depending on whether we've got a toddler preschooler versus a uh, early school age versus a tween. Yeah, yeah. So the big things to um, understand about sleep, there's kind of three big, well, four big things. Um, the first one is that um, sleep is something that's taught. So healthy sleep patterns is something that's taught, and our kids' brains and bodies need mentoring on how to do that. Um, And so we have to help them learn what it means to be a healthy sleeper. Um, And so remembering that it's not that they've messed up. It's that, again, it's a skill they're lacking. So how can I help them to figure out what they need, what their brain and body needs to sleep well? Um, The next thing I would say is if we have kids on medication, it's really important to understand the side effects of many of those medications because oftentimes those can affect sleep. They can affect dreams. Um, and things like that. So understanding um, and really researching into medications um, and how they can play an effect in sleep. Uh, The next thing that I would say that no matter what age these things um, matter is protein. Um, The more protein that we can get into a kid's diet, then the more we stabilize their blood sugar. And what we know is that um, sleep difficulties rise and fall with blood sugar um, peaks and valleys. So oftentimes when we have kids who are having night terrors or just waking up consistently throughout the night or are kind of tossing and turning, they need more protein in their diet. And especially for our kids who their engines are kind of running high all the time anyways, and maybe they experience some um, prenatal Um, lack of nutrition and things like that. So high protein is important throughout the day, but then before bedtime, a high protein snack can really, really help to eliminate um, any sleep issues, no matter what the age. So um, in our house, um, we have, I make like protein um, shakes, but I 
do them in popsicles. I use the chocolate flavor, and my kids don't know, but those are what we call fudge sickles, right? And so you can have a fudge sickle any night, right? But really, you're getting like 17 grams of protein right before you go to bed. Um, or one of my kiddos who has the most sleep issues for a very long time, whenever it was bedtime, he would come to the fridge and open his mouth and we would literally fill his mouth with turkey. Um, so much so that one time we were at a friend's house and he went to the fridge, you know, he's like, I'm hungry. Can I have something? You know, and she's like offering him choices and she's like, are we have turkey? And he's like, no, I'm not tired. And she was like, what? <laughs> but, you know, like he needed that huge boost of protein right before bedtime to make it through the night. Um, so protein for our kids' brains and bodies is really important no matter what the age. And then the last thing, no matter what the age, um, is sensory. Oftentimes our kids um, have some sensory um, issues that we all have, but for kids from trauma, because their brains and bodies can be a little different, they can sometimes be more pronounced. And so understanding um, how sensory plays a role. For many of our kids, weighted blankets are lifesavers for parents when it comes to sleep um, because it just provides that extra level of proprioception for our kids to allow their bodies to relax and feel calm. So those are the, you know, four main things when it comes to sleep using the TBRI model is, you know, remembering it's a taught skill and helping them to learn what they need, um, making sure that we don't have medications that are causing problems adding in more protein, and then making sure that sensory is in the piece of the puzzle. And when you say sensory in the piece of the puzzle, you've mentioned weighted blankets. Uh, what are some other uh, helping us think out of the box? The obvious one is um, pajamas that scratch or have you know labels in them uh, that, that bother the kids. That's an obvious one. Any other uh, sensory issues that are fairly common that would help people think, help parents think a little out of the box? Yeah, oftentimes because our kids are kind of their engines run high, they their little bodies just need help to calm down so that they can fall asleep. And so that's where sensory and proprioception comes into play. So things like creating routines around bedtime that add to that. So it might be how can I add proprioception or that means like deep muscle input because that is something that will all will calm anyone down. So for some, um, like I worked with a family and their kiddos needed so much proprioception their bedrooms were upstairs, and so we would have them wheelbarrow upstairs to bed, meaning like walk on their hands while their parents held their feet. And if you haven't done that recently, it requires an enormous amount of strength. But then to do it to go upstairs is even Good. more, right? Um, and then it got their head below their hearts, which also helps. Um, so, you know, they, they wheelbarrowed upstairs. Then they brushed their teeth. Then they got in bed, and while mom was singing and praying with them, instead of tickling their back, she was giving them a massage, and she added in some calming oils, right? Like, and so we were doing a lot of things sensory-wise around the bedtime routine that helped their bodies to relax. Um, mm -hmm. So adding in proprioception, that could be a massage. That could be some sort of deep muscle activity right before bed. Um, it could be that... Um, any of that deep muscle stuff. So maybe we wrap them up super duper tight like a burrito, right? Or um, like lay on them or, you know, things like that that can provide that sensory input to help their bodies relax. Um, for teenagers, that might look different, right? It might mean, hey, every night before bed, let's um, do push-ups together and then um, talk about your day and I'll heat up this hot sock for you and I'll give you a hand massage, um, at that time or, you know, something like that, where we're going to add it in an appropriate way that feels safe to the kids that we're caring for. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good suggestions all on uh, how to deal with and, and prioritizing your own sleep and accept and acknowledging that that getting your – prioritizing sleep as for as a family unit uh, is, I think, it's worth time and it's worth spending time to try to figure out how to solve some of those some of those really very real issues. Well, Amanda yeah. Purvis, thank you so much for talking with us today about how to practically apply trust-based relational intervention uh, and uh, with kids who have experienced trauma. I, I very much appreciate your the, your practicality, quite frankly, because um, you know it's one thing <laughs> to study it and know it in theory. It's a whole nother thing 
when you're uh, in the moment trying to deal with it and uh, trying to figure out how how to apply it in this moment, uh, not just what the book says, but what I actually need to do at this exact time with this exact child. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Let me remind everybody that this show is brought to you by the support of our partners who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information to pre- and post-adoptive and foster families. One such partner is Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited international adoption agency placing children from Armenia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine, as well as they do kinship adoptions uh, for uh, many countries as well. Uh, For people who want more information, and I'm sure that's going to be a lot of you, about TBRI as well as the other great work that they're doing at the Karen Purvis Center for Child Development, you can go to their website, and it is child.tcu.edu. And the TCU is Texas Christian University, Uh, so if you're wondering what that stands for. So child.tcu.edu. And keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how to apply it to your specific situation. You need to work with your adoption or mental health professional. Thank you so much for being with us today, and I will see you next week. Your hands were made for greatness. Mighty hands for painting, paneling, and clicking the submit order button on homedepot.com to get that duvet. And these Egyptian cotton towels delivered right to your door. Do more with decor at the Home Depot. Save up to 30% on select bedding and bath. Now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Ballot on select items online only. Free delivery on select items $45 or more. Enter promo code BEDBATH15 at purchase for an extra 15% off. Visit homedepot.com for more information. Your hands were made for greatness. Mighty hands for painting, paneling, and clicking the submit order button on homedepot.com to get that duvet. And these Egyptian cotton towels delivered right to your door. Do more with decor at the Home Depot. Save up to 30% on select bedding and bath. Now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Ballot on select items online only. Free delivery on select items $45 or more. Enter promo code BEDBATH15 at purchase for an extra 15% off. Visit homedepot.com for more information.